Thanks for downloading episode 31 of Development Drums. My name is Owen Barder from the Centre for Global Development. Today we're talking about microfinance, and my guest today is David Rudman, a colleague here at CGD, and the author of a new and important book, Due Diligence, an Impertinent Inquiry into Microfinance. David was a guest before on Development Drums back in 2008, when we were talking about the financial crisis and its effects on developing countries. David, welcome to Development Drums. Great to be here. So we're going to talk today about what the evidence tells us about the effect of microfinance on the lives of poor people and on the implications of that for aid donors and, and people who want to give money for poor countries. But I'd also like to explore with you later on in the show what you've learned about the roles of different kinds of evidence and also to hear something about how you wrote this book because it was an interesting experience. You did it as an open blog. So um, in, instead of sitting in a, a darkened room uh, on your own, you, you put it all online. So we'll talk about that later. But let's begin with what I think for many people will be the key finding of your book. And I know it's probably quite frustrating for you that um, we try and reduce a, you know, a rather rich, complex story into this one key factoid. Uh, but let's, let's get this out and, and see, what, uh, see what to make of it. You say in your book that the purpose of research is responsible generalizations. And um, is it a responsible generalization to say, as I think your book says, that on average, microfinance does not lift people out of poverty? It's a good question. I think whether it's a responsible generalization, it depends on what you want to do with it. If you're in pursuit of absolute truth, then that would not be a responsible generalization because we've only studied the impact of microcredit and microsavings in a few places at a few times. We don't know what the exact impacts are elsewhere. But if you're somebody who has to decide tomorrow whether to put $100 million into a microcredit program, then you have to go with the data that you have. And right now, what the studies are showing, the best studies, the ones that are randomized and I think most rigorous and reliable, is that microcredit, which is one kind of microfinance, is not uh, systematically reducing the poverty of its clients. Not systematically doing so, so not doing so on, on average. average. So how on do we average. reconcile this? You, you know, we hear many good stories from individual microfinance organizations who tell us about individuals and communities who they say have been helped by microcredit programs. And you're saying that the st statistical evidence is that on average, it isn't helping. How do we reconcile these two ways of seeing the world? Well, you know, if you were to give loans to three friends, one might buy a television with it, another might open a restaurant and the restaurant would fail, and another one might open the restaurant and have it succeed. You expect a given service to have a diversity of impacts, both because the people who receive it are different and live in different contexts, and because of luck. But to understand the average effect, right, in the case that you, in the example you give of three friends, if two of them have been helped, or one of them has been helped a lot, and one of them it's a wash, then the other one has to be harmed for the average effect to be zero, right? I mean, are you saying that for, all, for, for everybody who we can point to who's been helped, there is someone who has been harmed to the same extent so that it nets out? Uh, yeah, roughly speaking, that has to be the case, you know, within the, the limits of, you know, there's statistical noise, and so, but yeah, overall, that's what it has to be. And it's not that surprising once we put aside all the all the um, well all the hype that we've heard about microcredit. You know, uh, 
loans are very useful. They've been very useful in my life in getting an education, buying a house, but they're also dangerous. And they cost money too, right? So they have to help people more than they cost than in costs. order for there to be a net benefit. There is a kind of assumption, isn't there, that if you give a poor person a loan, that they will become an entrepreneur. And of course, many people don't have what it takes to be an entrepreneur. They, you know, I don't have what it takes to be an entrepreneur in many ways. Why, why would the average citizen be able to take, make use of a loan and make something of it? I mean, is your sense that we're pushing credit to people who, for whom that really isn't the thing that is preventing them from making this kind of a living? Uh, well, what we know is that there are uh, probably billions of people who are making their lives, they're living in what we call the informal sector. Legally speaking, they don't exist, but they are running very tiny business activities, whether they're giving motorcycle rides or selling food on the street. And they do that out of necessity. It's a matter of survival. Uh, and most of those activities, from what we know, don't lead to um, business growth. They don't start to build up and hire people and become no. formal. So I don't want to say that it's it's a mistake to think that um, uh, microenterprise is a dead end for poor people because this is absolutely, this is how a lot of people are surviving. But uh, we should also recognize that it's never in history has, has a, a society gotten rich through supporting this kind of microenterprise. So the image that we have of these, you know, women who borrow some money in the morning to buy vegetables and take them to market and sell them and repay their loan at the end of the day. Or you describe an example in the book of a woman who needs some money to buy, I think, what she needs to make a basket. And oh, yes. um, by, you know, at the moment she's being ripped off because the person who, you know, she's getting supply credit, but she, all she can do is make two cents a day on the basket. Now it sounds to me like for those people this is genuinely a, a big opportunity for them to to be have access to some other form of credit and be able to expand their stock and make more money. And that's that's the image that we've all been led to believe is is effective. Now you're saying that that isn't that doesn't create a sustainable path for people to industrialization and to be lifted out of poverty, is that right? That's right. And uh, by the way, that story that you, you mentioned, um, that's actually kind of the origin myth, although maybe a true story, um, of microcredit, because that's the story that Muhammad Yunus, right. who started the Grameen uh, Bank in Bangladesh and won the Nobel Prize, he, that's the one he tells that where the light bulb went on and he finally had this idea of giving loans to poor people. So that story and a million others like it are, are probably true that there were people who are benefiting from getting a lower cost source of credit, so they're not um, being subject to usury from a supplier or a landlord. Um, but then there are the others who go into the basket weaving business, and because of the um, uh, increase in supply of baskets, the price goes down, and so right. everybody's made a little bit worse off. And then there are the people who go into a business that don't work, doesn't work out, and the people who take a loan because a husband just got sick and needs to have his, his medical bills paid for. And you, you tell some quite distressing stories in the book of people who have taken out loans and maybe end up losing their house or you know having to sell their few assets because they have to repay the loan and the business hasn't worked out. And That's right. You know, we all know people who have been in that situation in our own countries and obviously if you're in that situation in a developing country, you're... You know, there's no safety net for you, so so people can be substantially worse off if they've 
taken out a loan that they shouldn't have taken out. That's right. I mean, depending on how you count, there's something like 150 or 200 million people who now are using microcredit. And so you know that that's going to happen sometime where people get in over their heads and they lose their house or something bad, really, really bad happens. So the question from, you know, a moral point of view, policy point of view, is, is, is this something that happens just once in a million? You know right. it's going to happen sometime. Or is it more like one in 20 or one in 10 where you can't just dismiss it as an anomaly? And there's no firm answer to that question. Uh, but in reading the anthropological studies, you know, written by people who have spent a month or a year living in a village in a, or a slum and, and, and watching the lives of people who are using these services, I didn't come away confident that we could dismiss it as something that was one in a million. Right. And just lastly on the evidence before we move on, I think there's a sense with some people who are involved with particular microfinance institutions to perhaps accept that what you're saying may be true of the average but to believe that their own organization is different, that they have better mechanisms for selecting clients or for, ma for managing loans or their, their charges are sufficiently low, that there seems to be a, a sense that this, this might apply to, to an average, but it doesn't apply to the best cases. Did you find evidence of that? I mean, is, is your, would it be fair to conclude that what we should do is reproduce and, and, and propagate the best examples of microcredit and stop doing the bad stuff? Uh, so far we have, by my count, uh, five randomized studies of the impact of microcredit and maybe now three of micro savings. And a bunch of those have came out since I, I uh, froze the book, so my book is already a little bit out of date. Although I'm happy to say most of them are reinforcing the earlier patterns, and that's actually directly relevant to your question yeah. because it, we're not seeing that one kind of microcredit is um, lifting people out of poverty while another isn't. In fact, it's, it's a remarkably uniform pattern across rural Bosnia and urban India, you know, and, and these other locations where the, the, the experiments have been done. In general, it's not over short time horizons, one to two years, um, reducing poverty, although it is stimulating microenterprise. And when I say it, I mean microcredit. The studies of micro savings are a bit more positive. Um, you know, and so one response I've gotten to the book is, well, yes, there's some other kind of microcredit or micro savings that hasn't been tested yet, and that's the kind that works. Right. And to which I say, great, let's run the experiment and find out, prove it. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bada, and my guest is David Rudman, and we're talking about David's book, Due Diligence. And we've discussed so far the evidence that microfinance uh, doesn't seem to be, on average, a way to lift people out of poverty. And we're going to talk next about the other ways in which microfinance is important for poor people. And then later on we'll talk about the experience of writing the book and, and about, uh, about what, what kind of evidence matters. So let's, let's move on, David, to the good that microfinance does. And you've got a lovely story in the book about being in Cairo and the contrast between what you were seeing in, in your simulations on your laptop and what your eyes were telling you. Tell us about that. Yeah. So when I started this work, uh, I guess four, maybe even five years ago, and uh, th there had been no uh, randomized studies yet of the impact of microcredit. So the leading studies were non-randomized ones, where lots of data was collected by surveying households, and then very fancy mathematics was applied in order to distinguish correlation from causality, to actually figure out what was causing what. Uh, and just, just to explain yes. to people, so in other words, it's possible that people who take out microcredit uh, do better, 
But that doesn't mean that the fact that they've taken out microcredit is what's made them better. It might be that people who are more entrepreneurial in the first place take out microcredit and would have done better anyway. You don't know that microcredit has caused the improvement in their income. So you're trying to use a statistical technique to establish whether the microcredit leads to being better off or whether there's some other relationship between the, that correlation. Is that That's exactly right. Statistics, what all it really statistics tells us is what's correlated with what. You know, are better off households borrowing more? To then interpret that as causation, is microcredit making people better off or worse off? requires additional assumptions and it requires some effort to rule out the competing stories that you don't want to be true. Right. Like it's just better off people being more comfortable borrowing. Right. And unless you've you've randomized the offer of treatment, which really makes it easy to tell what's causing what, um, it's difficult to figure out causality. And so fancier and fancier mathematical methods were, de were developed over the last few decades once the com microcomputers made this easy. And so the most influential studies were also the most complicated and confusing. Right. So there you are sitting in Cairo trying to understand right. this very complicated piece <laughs> yeah, so of I'm math. I'm trying to understand this thing by rerunning the study myself, writing my own computer programming and really understanding those equations and coming to doubt it, coming to think that actually we don't have evidence that microcredit is reducing poverty after all. And while I'm doing this, I, I visit a, a microcredit program in Cairo, uh, run by a group called the Lead Foundation that has a lot of funding from the U.S. government. And they take me to one of their branches in a poor neighborhood on disbursement day. And so I go into the lobby of this, this little office and it's just absolutely packed with women and their children because they're going to be there for several hours waiting to get their new loans. And the crowd actually overflows down the hallway and down the stairs and onto the street. Everyone's very excited and then I get to meet some of the borrowers. Um, like in the classical model from Bangladesh that Muhammad Yunus mm -hmm. made famous, they borrow in groups of five, mm -hmm. and the women are responsible for each other's loans, so if one can't pay, the others are supposed to pay. So through a translator, I got to talk to the borrowers, and they told me what they were going to do with the loans, and it was all what you would call petty trade. One woman was going to be buying and selling makeup to her friends and family, I think, um, and another, uh, I think her sister was going to be doing the same thing with bedsheets and so on. Uh, I don't think these women were allowed to go out to the public spaces that much. They're using their social networks as a way to, of doing commerce. Now, what they really were doing to do the loans, I'm not sure. They may have just been telling me this because they were required to say they were right. going to start a business to get There the they loans. were in the office to get the right. right. And right. the loan officer was right there, and the translator right. worked for the okay. lender. Who knows what the truth right. was? But it seemed pretty clear to me that they wanted these loans. Right. And they were voluntarily coming to use this financial service to get a little bit more control over their lives. And, and I thought, you know, should I tell them that back in my hotel and my laptop, I've been running conditional recursive mixed process regressions on a cross-section of household data from Bangladesh, and I was beginning to doubt whether these loans were such a good idea? And, you know, I realized, who was I to tell them how right. to live their lives? So different from my own. Right. And so for them, clearly, there was something worth having here, even right. if the data is telling us that right. it's not lifting people out of poverty. Right. And, and yet I, I firmly believe, as you do, and as, as you've written so eloquently, that it's important to have good evaluations done of what actually works and what doesn't. Right. And I was in the process of deciding what, what we knew. Right. So how do I reconcile these two sort of dis disparate views? The sense that something was good was going on, but the sense that we didn't have the evidence. And, um, and what I realized is that, and this kind of led to the analysis at the heart of the book, is that there were at least three distinct notions of success in the conversation about microfinance, in the good books I was reading, you know. One was development, they, they corresponded with the definitions of the word development. One was development as escape from poverty, which is the one we've talked about. 
Um, microcredit is successful if it lifts people out of poverty. That's development. But then there is development is freedom, which is the notion that development, and this goes to Amartya Sen, who wrote a book by that name, uh, development is about giving people more agency in their lives, and that can take many forms. Um, it can be, you get agency if you have higher income, right. and that's the traditional notion of development. But you can also get agency from higher education, better health, the right to vote, many kinds of freedom. And financial services seemingly can give you freedom by giving, helping you manage your financial circumstances. And then there's development as what I call industry building or economic transformation, which goes to the work of Joseph Schumpeter, an Austrian economist about 100 years ago, who popularized the term creative destruction and emphasized that what really development is really about, what really reduces poverty over the long run, is this process of constant economic and political transformation that's very disruptive but ultimately makes most people better off. Okay, so we're going to come to that third definition of development, the, the Schumpeterian one, but let's focus on the second one, the development as freedom. And we had um, Daryl Collins and Jonathan Mordach on Development Drums talking about their book um, that they wrote with Stuart Rutherford and Orlando Rutherford, um, Portfolios of the Poor, which is this analysis of what poor people do with money and in particular this insight that if you're living on less than a dollar a day you're not actually living on less than a dollar uh, some number coming in each day you're living on maybe four dollars one day and nothing the next day or you've got a big income during the harvest season and nothing during the winter or, that people actually that poor people need financial services more than rich people some kinds of financial services more than rich people and that one way that people can live better lives in developing countries is that they have access to these financial services that enable them to smooth their consumption across fallow periods of income and enable them to cope better with disasters, makes them more resilient and so on. So is that the sense in which microcredit can contribute to is that why women are excited in the in the lobby of, of the Cairo place? Is that is that what they're getting? Um that's part of part of why. And in fact, the reason I brought this conception of development as freedom into my book was precisely to embrace the work you're talking about, right. particularly by Stuart Rutherford, who wrote some earlier work in the same vein. Uh, so what I do in the book is I bring this, this notion, development as freedom, to microfinance. I say, okay, well, does microfinance increase freedom or does it reduce it? Or when does it do which? And when you start to think about it, there are lots of different aspects of freedom that we're talking about here. So one is the one that's really emphasized in portfolios of the poor. Does it help people manage the difficulties of their lives, pay the doctor bill when it comes in, save up for school fees, and so on? Um, and I think financial services inherently do that. I wouldn't say automatically or always, but inherently that's what they're about. You know, if, if your husband goes to the doctor and you need to pay that bill, you can pay for that with a loan if you're in a pinch. You can pay with it with, by drawing down savings. Uh, maybe your son in the city will send home money. That's a tr money transfer. Mm -hmm. Or if you're really lucky, you've got health insurance and pay for it that way. What that illustrates is that all financial services help people pull together money when they need it um, and are inherently about helping them get a control, getting more of a handle on their circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, but there are other aspects of freedom that come up in looking at this. You know, uh, a lot of the idea, one big idea around microfinance is that it's been empowering, especially for women. Uh, say in a very sexist society mm. like Bangladesh in the 1970s where women were formally prohibited from doing business in public spaces, going and buying and selling in the market. Whether, whether they actually did that is another question, but this was the norm. 
um, for women to be able to come together as a group in a public space and do business with real money could, was a breakthrough for many of them. That's another con conception of freedom that has to be brought in here. Um, but then there are also, there's the negative side. When, when do loans entrap? You know, this old question of what is usury? What, is, what interest rate is too high? So I, I survey all of this, and I also talk about some other themes like transparency. It seems empowering if you can understand the true price of the credit you're buying, if there aren't hidden fees that confuse right. you, right? And it's empowering if financial services are reliable. This is a theme that's emphasized in portfolios of the right. poor. Compared to borrowing money from your uncle or being in a, a savings group in your, on, on your alley, um, microcredit is very reliable. Yeah. Right. One of the things in portfolios of the poor was this idea that people didn't want to be questioned about, you know, what did they need the money for? And, you know, right. people liked the kind of impersonality yes. of being able to borrow from an institution rather than from their friend That's or right. from their family. That's right. Uh, that, 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 you know, and we can imagine that, right? It's nice to be able Absolutely. to have that conversation with your bank manager rather than to have to explain to your parents why you've run out of money yes. at the end of the month. Right. That okay. is empowerment. That's empowerment. Right. But what's interesting is that for many people, that isn't development, right? And you, yes. you know, you're doing something smart by saying this is development as freedom. Right. But you know, there's this distinction that people draw between giving people access to health, to education, mm -hmm. to clean water, to food, uh, as a as a subsidised service, as a as a service that they want. But many people think that, that that's, as it were, a kind of welfare transfer, but it's not a, it's not a development pro e Even if it's mm. worth doing, it's not, you know, and there are good reasons to do it, it isn't development. That what you're doing is you're just helping people live good lives. And that's a perfectly sensible objective, but it's not the same thing as having countries grow and develop. Yes. And I would agree that it isn't. Right. Uh, and one reason a lot of people like microfinance is that they yes, think it's not, it is that they thought it was investing in businesses and entrepreneurs yes, and right. growth and this is permanent and sustainable and catalytic and yada yada. Yeah. And now you're saying, no, no, this is just giving, this is a utility for people that we're, we're giving them. Right. What I'm saying it, it's, it's modestly useful. I wouldn't say that this is as valuable as, say, the same money spent on providing clean water so a child doesn't die. Right. right, so I was going to ask you that. Right. right, but where the strength can be that if you can build a, a mostly self-financing institution that serves a million people with rather modest subsidy, then you're having a modest impact on a lot of people. Right, so for a relatively small subsidy, say, then a lot of people have a significantly better life. Right. Do you have any kind of cost-effectiveness estimates of, I mean, it's quite hard to compare the utility that people get from being able to smooth their income from the utility they get from have, not having to walk eight miles to get clean water. But have we got any kind of sense of whether we should just spend that money on vaccines or water or whether providing access to financial services is a cost-effective way of raising people's happiness? It's a good practical question and my answer is no. <laughs> we don't know. Okay. So it, it might, but it could well be. In the example yeah. you give, right, if this is a, a, a business that's marginally unprofitable and we make it marginally right. profitable with a bit of a subsidy. Right. I mean, one of the reasons it's hard to answer is because a g any given microfinance institution, what it costs to support it from that, for an outside donor is a dynamic thing. Right. You know, it might cost a certain amount in the early years, but then it might become profitable later on, in which case it's, I don't know if that's a negative cost or what. But. So you have about three chapters of the book which are quite analytical, looking at the evidence of the impact of microfinance. But you've also got a long, I found very interesting discussion about the history of microfinance in our own countries, in, in wealthy countries. And one reason I liked it was that 
there's a discussion about Robert Owen, the Welsh, Welsh social reformer, um, philanthropist in the 18th and 19th centuries, who I happen to be named after Robert Owen. So I was glad to see his role in, in the story. Um, but what I was interested in is, is this idea that you um, uh, set out that the kinds of financial services that people like Grameen Bank introduced in Bangladesh were introduced at a much lower level of income per capita mm. there, I think you said about a quarter, of where those services began to emerge in our own societies. So is this an example of leapfrogging? They can take a technology, things have got cheaper, we know how to do it, so they, so they don't have to wait to, you know, as we've seen in the health sector where people have access to good technologies um, much, much sooner in the, as, as they become richer. Or is this an example of a technology that isn't yet sensible at those levels of income and that it will become an important part of the industrialization process, but perhaps there are reasons why it isn't having the impact yet that you would want it to see? Yep. Well, it's both. I think that um, these services are more practical at a lower GDP per capita than they were before. This time around, they don't have to, don't have to be invented first. Right. <laughs> right. You know, when, in, when you look at the history of uh, bringing insurance, for example, life insurance, to what were called the uh, industrial tradesmen, the, the, um, you know, the working class, that whole industry had to be invented and they weren't even sure about how to price things and so on. Um, uh, so clearly countries that are industrializing later can benefit from all that learning. And that, that is part of what happened with microcredit. It wasn't invented in 1975 by Mohammed Yudis. He was influenced by models that were brought there by the British uh, colonizers who in turn learned from Germans and so on. And in fact, Jonathan um, Swift in Ireland, I love that story. That's right. Story. Yes. Right. In the 1820s, Jonathan Swift was making loans of 10 or 20 pounds to what he called industrious tradesmen. Right. And he didn't require collateral. They just had to have two co-signers. So it's just like in these, these groups of five women who borrow and are responsible for each right. other's loans. So these ideas are, are ancient. Um, but history, is a, it is a good warning to, uh, to those who think, well, we should just give the poor health insurance. And it's really not practical when you're at $2 a day because you can spend more providing that insurance than is actually involved in the insurance policy itself. And only when you get to a higher level GDP per capita does it become practical. But I, I want to link this back to your, your Schumpeterian notion that you mentioned before, that investing in these kinds of institutions, having, having a, an effective microfinance financial services industry, is part of building the social capital that makes right. a country develop. Explain why it's important for industrialization to have these institutions. Well, you know, this, this gets to the third conception of, of, of development and success that I mentioned, development as industrial transformation. Um, uh, I don't think that microfinance is turning its clients, as you said, into Schumpeterian heroes of creative destruction. They're selling more tomatoes or more right. saris. Uh, but the institutions themselves, are many of them are quite impressive. They're competing, they're innovating, they're hiring thousands, they're, you know, serving millions. Uh, and that is the essence of economic transformation. Um, and so I think, you know, I can't think of other examples where outsiders, social investors and donors, have come in and created a whole industry in many of these countries that is geared towards delivering inherently useful services to poor people. Uh, so I think that they should be proud of that. I don't right. think, as we, as we discussed, these services may not be transformative. But if at modest cost you can build up these institutions to serve millions, that is a reasonable success. Your book is mainly about microfinance uh, rather than about aid and aid donors. And yes. 
I enjoyed that about it. But I just want to focus on the role of aid in this last mm. point you make, because I've been worried for some time that if you have subsidies, external subsidies, for these nascent financial institutions and for a, for a, for an industry, that you actually crowd out the Schumpeterian and creative destruction, that you end up with businesses that ought to go bust and be replaced by a young upstart, continuing to get subsidies from DFID or USAID or the World Bank. And instead of having creative destruction, you, you just have kind of rent-seeking. You just have, you have organizations that, that just, get, just get aid from somewhere. And you don't get the innovation that help, helps them serve poor people better. And you don't have um, the, the bad organizations going bust and the new, the new businesses coming into the business. So if you think that the Schumpeterian story is an important part of what makes microfinance important, does that suggest we should be trying to subsidise less? Um, I, I think, well, that's a valid concern, but, but, but you know, there's actually an even worse form of it because credit markets are, are special, right? If we were talking here about building up the clothing industry, right, you could, everything you just said could still apply. Right. But with credit, you've got this peculiar thing where the more you sell, we, you know, if you try to sell too much clothing, there's a glut, prices fall, and mm. inventories build up, and there's a proper feedback. With credit, if you try to shove a whole lot out, the market will absorb it, and everything will look good for a while, and then there will be an overshoot and a crash. Right, as we've noticed in our own countries in 2008. Right, and as happened with microcredit in right. several countries, such as Bosnia and uh, Pakistan and Morocco and Nicaragua. Um, and so that's actually the worst form of what's happened. And it is something that concerns me. Uh, I think, if anything, there's too much money going into microcredit now. We ought to see less, and that would be a double win because it would help put the microfinance industry on a more stable footing and would free up money to be putting into other things. Okay, so that's an important conclusion before we move on to the next session of our discussion, which is not only does microfinance not demonstrably, on average, lift people out of poverty, but also the support that we give it may also make it less effective in providing the other kinds of benefits that it might be providing in terms of building up a sustainable industry that, that, that does good for its people and doesn't do them harm. Yeah, this is why I say uh, an oversupply of capital may actually be the greatest threat to the greatest strength of microfinance. Very interesting. You're listening to Development Drums with Owen Bader, and my guest is David Rudman, who is also a senior fellow at the Centre for Global Development, but more importantly is the author of Due Diligence. We've talked about the role of financial services in development, and particularly that the evidence so far is that microfinance has no impact on average on lifting people out of poverty, but that it may do other beneficial things. Now, I just want to focus briefly now on this point about evidence. And we, we got into it a little bit earlier, but let's explore it a bit more, because I think a lot of listeners to Development Drums will hear talk about randomised control trials and so on, and, and this problem of, of causation. So perhaps you could, I think one of the things that I learned watching you talk about your book when you were recently visiting London was that people still struggle with some of these ideas. People still struggle with what, why this is important and, and what this, why this evidence matters. So tell us a bit about how and why the first randomised control trials for microfinance really began to shed light on an issue that, that otherwise would have been opaque. Right. So there has been this movement, which I think is very healthy in the last 10 years in development economics, towards 
using randomization as a much sharper way to study the impact of, of, of things that we're delivering to poor people. Uh, and so the first, that, that movement sort of arrived at the doorstep of microfinance in the summer of 2009, right. when we had the first two studies. One was done in, well, they're both done in cities, so they're both urban studies. Uh, one was done in Manila, in the Philippines, and the other one was done in Hyderabad, in India. The biggest caveat to both of them, I think, is that they studied impacts over a relatively short time frame, 12, 18 months. So we don't know what happens over the longer, longer term yet. Uh, but they contradicted the most cited studies up to that point in finding no impact on how much money ho- households were spending, which is the basic indicator of poverty, how many kids were in school, how sick people were, these kinds of things. Just no real impact on So the, the important insight here was that the people who got loans and the people who didn't get loans, the only difference between them was the throw of a dice or the, is that right? Is that, is that what happened in both cases? Exactly right, yes. So if you've got a large enough number of people who do get loans and a large enough people who don't get loans, and the only reason you're in one group or the other is the throw of a dice, then if it turns out that one group is doing significantly better than the other group, you've got to surmise that it's because they got loans. Right, or an act of God, one or the other. Well, right, <laughs> the, 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 uh, let's not go there. Okay, so, so the randomization is helping us distinguish between the effects of the credit, because that's the difference between the two groups, from the other things that might determine whether or not people are uh, getting better off. Because, because on average, you would think that all those other things that would be d- driving people's, you know, what's happening in the economy as a whole, um, all the, where they are geographically, the size of their family, all those other things are going to be, on average, the same in these two groups. That, that's the reason why randomization mattered. Exactly. So what was wrong with the old trials that this randomization problem fixed? Why, why, why were we seeing no effect in the randomized control trials? but people were picking up an effect in the other, in the other kinds of evidence. Um, m- most likely because there was some other uh, story at work. So, for example, um, this, th- the study that I was delving into in such great, uh, great, such great uh, length um, when I was in Cairo, that looked at the impact of microcredit in Bangladesh. And it found that households that were spending more, meaning they were less poor, mm. Um, had also used more microcredit in the last five years. Right. So there's a correlation between spending more and using more right. microcredit. I think, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, what but I... Presumably th- that correlation, they were controlling, I mean, in econometric terms, they were trying to control for all these other things, right? They had variables in yeah. there that said for a given family size or a given place or yada yeah. yada, presumably. Yeah. Actually, as I think about it, this is maybe a bad example because what I've discovered with this particular study is that... Um, there is, it, it, there's some very technical problems. I mean, basically, it's a kind of stor- study where if you take out, there were 1,800 families in the study. Mm-hmm. If you take out the richest 14, who um, actually were anomalously rich, in the sense that if you looked at the distribution of wealth in the sample, mm-hmm. it was a bell curve, except that they were way off too far right. to the right on the tail. One, one tail was too big. Um, if you take them out, and the study actually assumed that this was, there was a bell curve here, so if you took them out in order to make the study meet its own assumptions, the result completely went away. Okay. They were actually causing So it was a statistical error then in that case or, yes, or something going undetected. on. But in right. general, what my, my, my feeling is I believe the correlations, but I don't believe that one causal story has been proved and all the others disproved. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, it seems to me that one of your 
great strengths, David, is that you are determined to understand what we can and can't conclude from these kinds of statistical correlations. And you've done great work in, in the area of the impact of aid on economic growth, where you've basically cast doubt on these um, studies that purport to show that countries that get more aid grow faster. And, and your conclusion isn't that aid is ineffective, it's just that your conclusion is that we don't know. And in some sense, your conclusion here is not that microfinance is always and everywhere ineffective, but that the, the, the evidence we have so far suggests that we don't know. And I'm just wondering if you've just got a higher standard than everybody else for what we do and don't know, right? I mean, to, to most of the rest of us, this looks like compelling evidence. And you're just a, you know, a deep sceptic, and that's a valuable thing. But should the rest of us say, well, that's just David being super careful about what we, you know, in some sense, there are lots of things we don't know, but it suits us to behave as if we do know them and life goes on. Are you being too sceptical about what we know? Or should we should we go with the flow and, you know, believe our eyes when when people tell us that they've seen microfinance really making a difference? Yeah, if you have a few things I want to say to that. First, before this is over, I want to just want to emphasize that um, the studies of mi- the impact of micro savings have been more positive. They're right. seeing people weathering shocks better and um, having higher incomes and higher investments. So, mm-hmm. so I don't want to lose sight of that. Right. The microfinance is not microcredit, um, and but precisely because we do have these this growing number of good studies, ones I believe, I wouldn't say that we don't know anything. You know, where we're right. getting some precisely measured zeros and some precisely num- measured numbers that are not zero, that are right. good good impacts. Um, so in a sense, that's the difference between the aid growth thing. That here, yes. in the aid growth thing, we don't know. Here exactly. we do know, and the answer is zero. Right. Is that and, your and, right. and the problem is we can never run a randomized trial of the impact of aid on growth. Right. And so, whereas I can say with microcredit, we don't know, but let's just wait a little bit longer, or let's commission more good studies. We're always going to be kind of stu- stuck with aid and growth that we won't be able to perform the randomized right. studies. And so there it is more valid to say, yes, David, but we have to go with what we know, whether you trust it or not. Right. What I will say is my own experience, you know, from the day I started here, you know, uh, I started here 10 years ago and started working for Bill Easterly, who was then at the center. And the first thing he had me do was get the data for this famous study on aid and growth by Burnside and Dollar at the World Bank, which showed that aid worked in a good policy environment. And had me rerun the numbers and add a few more data points, and boom, the, the study, the results just went away. Right. And that was a really formative experience for me, one that has been repeated a bunch of times, where I look into these non-randomized studies and almost invariably find problems. Uh, so my own experience, which I don't find, expect other people to buy into 100%, is that you cannot rely on these things. Right. Whereas randomization makes these makes the mathematics much simpler because essentially you, you can take these two groups, one with and one without, and just look at the averages, right? You, on average, these people have a higher income than that. And the only possible explanation is that having the microcredit or whatever it is made a difference. So the, because the maths is much simpler, you don't have this sensitivity to whether a particular data point is in there or not. That's right. I think I see randomized trials as sophisticated in their simplicity. Right. This is Development Drums with Owen Barder, and my guest is David Rudman. We've talked about the effects of microfinance and about the importance of rigorous evidence. And we're now going to spend the last few minutes of the podcast talking about the unusual way in which this book was written. So let's turn, David, to what you learned during the process of writing this book about the the process itself. Tell us what you did. 
Well, uh, maybe I, I should back up. I don't know how many years ago it was when a, a man named Owen Barter came to CGD and told us we should blog. <laughs> and he Big persuaded mistake. us to do Big so. Big mistake. That's a time sink. <laughs> and we said, what's a blog, right? <laughs> I remember you explaining to me that the author writes posts and everybody else can comment. I hadn't understood that. Um, so we started blogging here. And then uh, three years ago, I was working on the chapter on the history that we discussed earlier discovering that there were all these old examples, Jonathan yeah. Swift and all the others back 200 years ago. Um, Robert Owen, remember? Robert Owen, yeah. yes, of course. <laughs> and uh, thinking, well, there must be a lot I'm missing, right. right? I'm just finding this by following footnotes and Googling stuff. What don't, what don't I know? Why don't I share my draft on the web so other people can tell me what I'm missing? And in discussions with Lawrence McDonald, our communications director, um, we thought, well, we should just put everything online and we got advice um, that we should not just put stuff online, but turn it into a real blog, that I should share everything. Right. Share what I'm writing, share my discoveries, share my questions. I mean, that's a sharp contrast with the way normally people write yeah. books, right? You go and sit in a dark room with your word processor and you churn right. it out until it's finished and then you send it to the printer. Right. And, and maybe an editor looks at it, but no one else. Yeah, and this sort of two-step communication process where you spend a year preparing your message and putting it out there once it can't right. be changed and then there people can respond right. seems rather archaic in the, in the age of Twitter. Right. right, where you can have this all this constant interaction, so it's it's been a fantastic experience. Um, it has allowed me to do many of the things that the book um, was designed to do in terms of helping me think, helping me teach others, signaling my expertise. It also allowed me to be much more agile in responding to events. There have been a lot of events in the microfinance mm -hmm. world the last few years, um, and it improved the, the final product I, um, in several ways. It, I was able to test ideas and have them shot down. Um, I was experimented with my voice. I discovered, became more confident in writing in a more informal way. So I think you'll see some of that in the book. And I just want to say for people who haven't read the book yet, I have to say I was a bit daunted by picking up a big book about microfinance because I'm interested, but I'm, you know, I'm not that interested. I, I found actually it was a very good read. I, uh, you know, it's full of interesting stories. It's written in an informal style. It's got a, it's got a lot of you in it, but it's got a lot of people in it as well as a lot of kind of numbers and tables and things. So. Um, if you're, you know, if you're not sure whether to read due diligence, you you really should get hold of a copy and have a look at it because I think it did it, it did give you a voice that made it very readable. This this process. Great, and if you're overseas and having trouble getting, it, you can try getting the Kindle edition, which can be read on iPads and such. Um, the main disadvantage for me was that on any given day, it was much more fun, fun to blog than to work on the book. Right, so it slowed things down. Yes. <laughs> so it took rather, you know, a year or so longer. And that, that was compounded by the fact that there was so much news. You know, Muhammad Yunus right. was removed from his job, and there was a big crisis in India. There's a lot to cover and keep up with as a blogger. Right. Uh, so the blogging did take on a life of its own. It but if you were going to write another book tomorrow on some new issue, you would do it this way, or you, you would go back to the darkened room? You know, you know, it's a good question. I think it depends on the natural audience. I, I was blessed here with, you know, working on a subject that lots and lots of people are interested in. Right. If I was working on something much more arcane, I, I might, might, might not do it. I don't know. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, at the Centre for Global Development. And my guest has been David Rudman, the author of Due Diligence, An Impertinent Inquiry into Microfinance. David, thanks for coming on Development Drums. It was a true pleasure. If you like Development Drums, you should consider also listening to the Global Prosperity Wonkcast, a shorter, snappier podcast hosted by my colleague Lawrence MacDonald. And you can find both Development Drums and the Global Prosperity Wonkcast on iTunes or at the Centre for Global Development website. 
I've got lots of interesting guests lined up for development drums, so if you want to pose a question to one of them, visit our Facebook page and put your question there. You can also suggest topics and guests for future episodes. Development Drums is produced by Anna Scott. Please look out for us on Facebook, but until next time, thank you very much for listening. Sunny day